Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is John Grinspan, who is curator of the Division of Political and Military History at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. And one of the more innovative uh, young historians writing about American politics today. He's the author most recently of a book called The Age of Acrimony. And if you go a little further down his CV, you'll get a sense of the context in which he wrote that book. John describes himself as someone who studies the deep history of American democracy, especially the wild campaigns of the 1800s. And his most recent book explores, as its title suggests, a very contentious period of American politics between Reconstruction and just before World War I. He is particularly interested in partisanship, political style, political rhetoric, political invective. He explores what he calls the tension between political participation and civility. And I can't think, actually, of a more relevant subject in American history to today's political scene. And so I asked John to come on the podcast because what we're about here is the story of the American political argument and the possibilities for maybe restoring a little stability and civility to it in our time. And it seemed like he would be a good person to ask for some historical perspective on those issues. So with that, John, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm a, a listener and a fan and also a fan of your work on American history. So it's exciting to get to chat. Well, thank you, John. I wanted to ask you about that phrase, the wild campaigns of the 1800s. Um, I just love the notion of wildness uh, in politics, but I think it's something that when we explore history on the sort of uh, pages of a textbook or something in high school or college, kind of gets lost out of the story, the sort of lived drama of the experience for political participants. Tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say politics were wild in the 1800s. Yeah, I think a lot of historians are motivated by the realization that something they were taught was not quite right. And I was always taught that American political history looked a little bit like those those placemats you would see in a restaurant where it's a picture of the president's faces and these kind of gray bearded guys. And it all looks a little staid and remote And this kind of sense that American democracy, with a few exceptions, has been really this kind of uh, gloves on affair where, where elections aren't really that exciting. And every once in a while you get a war. And I've come to realize that we have this incredibly deep, rich history of a really both wild in terms of fun and wild in terms of ugly political system, that political campaigns, especially in the 19th century, in the first kind of hundred years of American democracy, engage really large swaths of the population, the people who could vote and people who could not vote. They bring out some of the, the greatest emotions and energies. They, they turn into really a form of, of uh, social life for many people. It's kind of the main national conversation in society. And a lot of that is driven by competition, by partisanship, 
by some ugliness and also driven by things like whiskey and fireworks and barbecue. So it just seemed like a really rich history that we were doing a bad job teaching in a way. Not, not to insult any other historians, but it's just a really rich story that we have not fully mined in quite some time. Well, you know, I think one thing that observers of this country from other democracies like in Europe, perhaps, or Canada, often fail to appreciate is the sheer entertainment value of politics for the American people. And, you know, we have these spectacular events now, these rallies, these caravans, these TV shows, TikTok, everything. But I think what you would argue, if I understand your work correctly, is that there's a there's a basis for all of that, for that role of politics, for that entertainment role of politics in the campaigns of the of the 19th century. Maybe you could articulate for us with a couple of specific examples how we got started down that road toward politics as entertainment. Yeah, this is the oldest form of national entertainment and conversation we have before Hollywood, before baseball, people had elections to argue about. You know, um, Henry David uh, Henry Thoreau said um, that when they were connecting America by telegraph wires in the 1840s, maybe Maine and Texas had nothing to talk about. And what it turned out that the whole country had to talk about was political elections. And there's just a shared argument and a shared discussion built from say the 1820s on as more and more people get access to the right to vote, especially white men without property and expanding from there. It builds into the central national conversation. You have these political parties that exist from Maine to Texas to California, and you have eager people who are trying to get ahead in life. You have money being poured in. You have voluntary labor being poured in. These campaigns that are kind of organized around big public spectacle in a society without many national holidays, without many kind of folk traditions from the old world, elections, campaigns, rallies, big barbecues, bonfires, these really become the center of social life for Americans in kind of peaking in, in late summer and, and fall of an election year, really take over society in a way that you can see business subsides. There are fewer marriages around that time of year because people are so focused on going to the town square and arguing politics and listening to speeches or going to the saloon and, and maybe getting a free drink or arguing with somebody over a beer. This really forms a bedrock for voters, certainly, but also non-voters are reading these newspapers and attending these rallies, too. It 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 binds together a really diverse country in a shared argument that at its best brings people into government and at its worst gets people killing each other. So you're, we're going to talk about your book, The Age of Acrimony, in a moment, but I want to talk about your current work in progress, which is, as I understand it, titled Wide Awake, The Youth Rising That Brought the Civil War. And you're going to, you've written about this in magazine articles already, but it's, as I understand it, you're going to tell the story of the wide awake anti-slavery clubs. Tell us in a nutshell about them and how they illustrate your point about politics as a kind of uh, a form of uh, almost like a, a, an aggressive pastime that people engaged in in those years. Yeah, the wide awakes were these clubs of young Northerners who, in the election of 1860, right before the Civil War, put on military uniforms, light torches, and march at night 
against what they called the slave power. That the situation at the time is that there's this really small minority of slave owners who are running the country and constantly walking all over the interest, not just of the enslaved people who, who unfortunately weren't being listened to all that much, but also the majority of white northerners who feel like the country is run in the interests of slavery. And so they start basically rising up, these young people, and they use these military metaphors and these military uniforms that walk this really tricky line between campaign rhetoric and opening up a civil war. And it's really hard to look at these guys and say, are these standing up against slavery for freedom? They, they kind of trickle into the South. They have African-American clubs somewhere. They have immigrants in the movement. They, they really become this big, diverse movement against slavery. But at the same time, they're pushing these really dangerous buttons of civil war, of militarism, of endless campaigning, of military uniforms, guys in the streets with torches, the kinds of things that for a lot of us look like alarm bells. And so it's it's a kind of a fun and fascinating history. And then those people who lead secession in the South often say we're seceding because we can't stay in a democracy with these wide awakes. And it all gets at this point that I, I think I'm trying to make in all of my projects, which is that political behavior is a form of ideology in itself. And the way you campaign and the way you run and the way you operate in campaigns and in office is as much a form of ideology as what you want to do with with taxes or, or trade and often determines the fate of the country. And it's kind of an untold story that we have this fascinating behavior that, that influences so much. Is there actual continuity between people who were leaders in the wide awake movement and people who later, let's say, volunteered for the Union Army or became, you know, prominent advocates of the Union cause in the Civil War? Or was there some kind of uh, discontinuity in the sense that this was a sort of a flash in the pan related just to the 1860 election? It, there's real continuity in that a lot of the people who were the first enlistees in the Union Army in the spring of 1861, when the fighting starts, are members of wide awake clubs. They're kind of the first and most eager members. And also there's continuity in that everywhere there's a flashpoint where you really get from an election to a war, the wide awakes are there. In in St. Louis, where there's the first real bloodshed of the Civil War, you have the wide awake political clubs get turned into militias and attack the, the secessionist aligned side, living in St. Louis and, and camped outside of St. Louis. They kind of turn from a political campaign organization into guys with guns shooting at people. In Baltimore, where there's the first attacks on Union soldiers from, from the southern side, the people who organize those attacks have basically their own militia that they organize to fight the wide awakes. Everywhere an election turns into a war, and we really see these dangerous boundaries of political behavior. The wide awakes are either referenced or present. And it it's a story we've kind of left on the table for a really long time. We have this image of the Civil War. It's guys in blue and guys in gray who spontaneously start fighting. And people know it came from slavery. But I don't think people realize that the mechanisms that got us from an election campaign to a war are really tied up with democratic behavior and behavior we see parallels to today. It, it, it makes things kind of more poignant and also more understandable how you how you actually end up with a country at war with itself. You know, that that leads me straight into my next question, which was that there's probably some people listening to the podcast have already thought this to themselves. There's this eerie parallel between the phrase wide awake and the phrase we have today of wokeness. There's this idea continuous over the centuries between sort of two states of political mind, right? One in which you're kind of asleep and unaware and not doing anything. 
and by extension, kind of neglecting your duties, and another one in which you're fully aroused. Do you agree with that uh, parallel? Yeah, absolutely. And they were building from the Know Nothing movement before them, who were also saying they were aroused and awake. And, and they were saying they were awake to this, this phony belief in a Catholic conspiracy of immigrants, which is entirely baseless. A lot of these same guys say, you know what, the real conspiracy is the slave power. And that's much more accurate. There really was a, a movement to dominate the federal government by slave owners. So y- you see you see these themes of kind of awaking and uh, to an issue, and sometimes they're really powerful and motivating and get good things done, and sometimes they justify behavior that really crosses boundaries. I mean, you can connect wide awake not just to woke, but to phrases like American carnage from the last couple of years, that if if you can convince your your political club or your side or your tribe that some boundary has been crossed and it's time to wake up, you can also get them to engage in pretty awful behavior. You see it throughout American history. I mean, in the 60s, people talked about getting turned on. Today, people talk about woke or red-pilled, on, depending on either side. The sense of finally realizing the enemy in front of you is a really powerful motivator. Yes. And it's extraordinary how it, 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 it's kind of recurrent in our history. Uh, and yet I would imagine each generation that's discovering it thinks it's discovering it's the first one to wake up, right? Because uh, that's part of the that's part of the frisson. That's part of the thrill of doing that. Yeah, and these guys were twenty three years old. The, the national leader was not old enough to have ever voted in a presidential election before. That this was a youth movement, and often that's how you get young people into politics: is telling them the previous generation was uh, leaving the real issues on the sidelines. And that's that's how reformers have operated throughout time. That's that's really how you get people in. But that's also, again, what can justify some pretty um, norm-shaking behavior. So the subtitle of your book, The Age of Acrimony, is How Americans Fought to Fix Their Democracy, 1865 to 1915. And that's an arresting formulation right from the start that you're fighting to fix something uh, as opposed to perhaps, I don't know, cooperating to fix something, getting together to fix something. And what I like about that book is that it kind of reopens, again, another kind of neglected or unduly forgotten, overlooked epoch between the Civil War and World War I, where there was a lot of partisan trench warfare, but not a whole lot of uh, what you might call dramatic breakthroughs in terms of American political development. Tell me if you think that is, first of all, that I've accurately characterized that period. And secondly, if maybe that isn't maybe a parallel to the partisan warfare we're in now, whereas opposed to the pre-Civil War partisan warfare, which turned explosive, the post-Civil War partisan warfare was more in the nature of something that was kind of a stalemate or sterile. Yeah, I think I think you can have a political system that's almost like a a sustainable disaster. And we because we're so <laughs> narrow, you know, because we're so narrow in our thinking about the past, when we talk about bad political situations, we always go to the civil war. Are we on the verge of the civil war? How is this like the civil war? But we really have other I think more useful parallels to point to, specifically the one you you refer to kind of in the late 19th century where I, on the one hand, I would say it does feel dramatic. Every election feels like one side is obliterating the other. And these are the closest elections in American history. The highest turnout American elections in American history really happened in the decades after the Civil War, not the run-up to the Civil War. And what's amazing is how little actually changes. That These two basically equally matched parties can spend decades 
beating each other's heads in and, and achieve almost nothing. Well, what was uh, especially intriguing about that book was that you told that broader story through the particular experience of a, of a single family. The father, William Kelly, who was a veteran congressman and had been a Republican of Pennsylvania, had been anti-slavery and a reformist in his time. And his sort of woke daughter, <laughs> Florence <laughs> Kelly, who was kind of even more of a reformer. And uh, the two of them had sort of a fraught relationship. But even within their family, they kind of, as, as I recall, the book sort of reached a, a kind of a stalemate. N neither ultimately achieved the kind of dramatic reforms or objectives that they had articulated and that you also get the feeling that during that time, all kinds of previously radical ideas got mainstreamed and then processed and then kind of cast out. Talk to us a little bit about why, what the mechanism is in the 1880s and 1890s that enables this stalemate to linger. Why, why didn't it ever kind of come to a head and produce the decisive moment that the partisans were striving for? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and one we don't fully know the answer to. I mean, it is true that everyone in this generation has a memory of the Civil War and a knowledge of how badly things can go if they push a little too hard. And, and so there are, even where you see the worst behavior, there are some guardrails in that nobody wants a second Civil War. But but there's something else that they had in the 1880s and 1890s that we really seem to have again today, which is somehow the more close, the, the more heated a cultural war gets and the more at each other's throats two political parties are in a two-party system, the closer and more evenly matched they become. They kind of sand each other down into equal opponents. You'd think one side would have a stronger coalition than the other and they'd win and there'd be landslides and one side would decisively defeat the other. But as Henry Damaris Lloyd, the muckraking journalist said, party government does, doesn't settle things. Party politics is the best way for keeping things unsettled. And we see this today, these two parties that, you know, maybe they can swing 3% or 5% in any given election, but no one can kind of land that landslide blow. And they don't really have presidential election landslides until the 20th century. You have these really unsatisfying affairs where somebody, if they're lucky, wins by 2% of the vote. So it's a paradox because it's a, it's a stable situation that to anybody who's living in it feels unstable. It feels as if it could kind of go cat catastrophically wrong at any moment. I'm thinking of events, these sort of violent events of 1877 that occurred during the period you write about. And in our own time, we had the year of 2020, which is extremely tense with, in fact, a lot of protests, a lot of violent activity of all kinds. Nevertheless, there is that ability of the system, not exactly to right itself, but to sort of not go completely off the rails. And that's what brings me back to your uh, also elegant phrase, the tension between participation and civility, right? Because, you know, the, I think I think a sort of an idealistic view of democracy is that, you know, everybody, the more people get involved, the better for the system. But it seems like the more people get involved, the more they get ugly with one another. Um, we had lower voting participation in the 1960s, or sorry, 50s and 60s and 70s. And at least between the parties, I think there was less incivility. There was a lot of unrest in the surrounding society. But now with massive voter participation, 
back in style. The parties are completely uncivil to each other. Wasn't that also a parallel with the the post-Civil War time that that high levels of participation were either consistent with or contributed to incivility? Yeah, and that's what really attracted me to this story to begin with, that um, if you look at a chart of turnout in American history, the, the absolute peak is the years after the Civil War, when average presidential election, 77% of eligible voters go to the polls, and in certain elections, well over 80% of those who could vote are voting. And you'd think the kind of fairy tale image we have of democracy, I mean, the more people turn out, they win, they throw out the bad guys, everything gets better. But really, there's a model where the more people turn out, the harder it is to get anything done. And we can see in our own era, when our election, our turnout is up to levels of like the early 1900s, which would have been low for, for the late 19th century, that that turnout comes with that engagement comes with animosity and that there's a way you can build a model of, of great turnout that has people in the streets really mad at each other and can't get anything done or resolve anything or pass significant legislation for for generations. And I, I really love questioning democracy that way. I think we, a lot of us were raised with this idea that the more democracy, the better. It will solve our problems in the end. But I think that's a pretty uncritical view. I, I've come over time to think about democracy more in some ways how we think about, most people think about capitalism, which is incapable of generating great prosperity and development, but also has a dark side and can generate incredible inequality. Well, I think democracy is pretty similar in that it can obviously bring people into government in an unprecedented way in world history, but it can also generate real inequality and real animosity. Now, toward the end of the period you discuss in the age of acrimony, there is constitutional change. The income tax is constitutionalized. Direct election of senators is instituted through constitutional amendment. One gets the feeling that as the period comes to an end, certain big decisions got made in, the, in terms of political, long, long sought political and economic reforms. The Federal Reserve is established, for example, in banking. But what I'm getting at here is that when you say people were fighting to fix their democracy, it seemed like the policy agenda of the time revolved around the idea that there's something fundamentally broken or corrupt about our system that we have to sort of reform out of existence so that if legislatures don't control senatorial elections, then, you know, society will function and democracy will function a whole lot better. And yet it took decades for even fairly modest progress to result on those points. As you look at today's political panorama where people are offering all kinds of, you know, structural reforms, get rid of the filibuster, eliminate first past the post uh, voting and go to rank choice and so on. Talk to us a little bit about the parallels between that kind of trend and mood today and what was going on 140 years ago. Yeah, I mean, this is the period. I don't want to make it sound like Groundhog Day because this period ends with the greatest political changes in our history since the writing of the Constitution. Uh, the, the, what they call the progressive era from maybe 1900 to 1920 or so is, as you say, the, the passage of all these bills in terms of affecting American public life and, and political life. Uh, our system is dramatically reformed by people who are saying openly, we want to revise this Constitution. It's no longer working for us. And they make changes that would be shocking today, the, 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 the scale of them. And also policies that were really radical in, say, the 1880s or 1890s and pushed by this populist fringe 
become basically mainstream in the 20th century. And it's, it's kind of amazing to see how ideas that would get you, you kicked out of your political party in 1880 are consensus by 1920. And this one of the one of the big lessons of this book that, that sounds obvious, but is important to dramatize is that deliberate reform and change are possible and that we have this huge heritage in our history of active reformers identifying flaws and problems in their democracy and dramatically changing how we behave. So this this kind of attitude I, I, I hear sometimes that we're, we're stuck on this cycle or this downward spiral. It, it ignores how much change has been successfully made in our past. Um, I think we, we like telling ourselves the darkest version of our history right now. And it it leaves a lot on the table in terms of successive reform. Well, I guess it's another paradox in the sense that there was an extended period of partisan trench warfare and then a relatively compact period in which tremendous change occurred. And maybe that's just the way majorities form in this country. It's sort of a glacial pace, right? I think about, it's in the news now, same-sex marriage, which yeah. a mere 18 years ago was rejected. I think it was by more than 30 state referenda or something, and now enjoys 71% public approval and 60 plus votes in the Senate. We have that way, we don't we as Americans of denying that we ever believed something in the past that we now fervently uphold in the present. Maybe that's a source of uh, flexibility. Maybe that's a source of uh, potential rejuvenation in, the, in our culture. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on how optimistic or pessimistic you want to be, because the other angle here is that to make all those changes in the early 20th century, both to you know political behavior and, and to policy, it, it took a restraining of that old political model to the degree that voter turnout fell. A lot of people, especially those people who are kind of lower status in society, working class voters, younger voters, immigrant voters, African-Americans, even in the North, really turn off and stop participating. And voter turnout crashes from 80% in the late 19th century to fewer than half of eligible voters by the 1920s. So again, that that model of, of kind of positive change sometimes happens when both these behaviors are restrained and also people turn off at large numbers. And so that's a that's a mixed blessing that in, it, on the one hand, they really do manage to make these significant changes that we're benefiting from today. And on the other hand, a lot of those changes come at the expense of uh, that big, vibrant culture that got great engagement and got people to care about the government. Yes. And and that's I'm glad you reminded me of that aspect of your book, because the paradox becomes that sort of the most high minded people feeling that they're acting in a manifest public interest are also often people who are the most skeptical about mass participation in politics and seek to restrain it. I mean, do you see any parallels to that in our time? I guess the one thing I'll say is I've come to believe that very few people have really strong dogma in how we should use our government. Most people want to affect change. And whether that comes through judicial activism or legislation or, or kind of uh, boycotts or, or cultural campaigning, it seems like people want to make change whatever way they can and are much more loosey-goosey about which mechanism of power they should use. And so you can see people who it never would have tried one approach in the 1880s, leaning into that approach in 1900. And you can see that in our own culture, too. Who has faith in, in free speech and who supports some form of, of uh, self-censorship today, that kind of thing. It, it's interesting to see people really vacillate over their political careers. Are you suggesting, John, that politics uh, encourages people to think that the ends justify the means? You know, I, I might be. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too, <laughs> too too jaded and I'm 
and dark. But yeah, it's, it seems like that often happens. Well, you know, I've often observed covering politics over the years that sort of one man's principled uh, conduct is another's ideological inflexibility. Um, the ability to contradict oneself is actually a democratic skill. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a skill that's necessary to get along and move, if not necessarily forward, at least move off in another direction once you're once you're active in politics. There's something else with that, which is that um, politicians are really adept readers of voters, and or that can underline really bad behavior for much of American history. To win votes, political parties and machines adapted really corrupt behavior or supported political violence, and so that can really be, be an awful force. But I don't know. This last election seemed to underline the fact that voters in key states don't want to lie about elections, don't want to uh, live in this fantasy world where our, our democracy, we can just make up results as we, we see fit. A lot of politicians are going to read those results. I, I, I hope they do. But um, you never know what you never know how strong ideology is running against the, that, the almighty voter as the the, the uh, kind of the compass for a lot of politicians. Well, again, I think something that as a journalist and particularly an opinion journalist, I've had bred into me is this idea that the most admirable politician is the most principled one and the one who means what he says and says what he means and or she. And of course, m much of the time, if not most of the time, that is an admirable quality and it's sometimes even a productive <laughs> quality. But as uh, as I've gone along over the years, I have found it increasingly to be respected, the politician who understands when it's time to abandon uh, ostensible principle in favor of stability. And, you know, again, this is to me, this is kind of the, the challenge of our time is whether people are capable of grasping that stability per se is a value that perpetuation of a pretty good system and maintaining the oppor opportunity to reform it over time is more important than sort of getting what you want or declaring what you want. So I've just, that's my little sermon there. Feel free to respond. Yeah. But I also think that, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I absolutely agree. And it, it kind of gets this thing I'm saying about how political behavior is an ideology in itself, that as much as whatever you want to do with the federal government or tax dollars, the, the sense of when it's acceptable to cross certain lines is is an ideology. And it's not necessarily how the parties are aligned always, but it um, it's an underlying force. And because we grew up, those of us who grew up in the 20th century with so much stability, you know, it really, for all its issues, 20th century America was the most stable place on the planet to live out the 20th century. I think up until the Iraq war, we, we really didn't think about the value of stability very much. And that kind of opened our eyes to what happens in a society when stability gets threatened. And now we see in our own society the, the kind of not to, not nearly to the same degree, but but menacing instability and how politically significant that is. And we've kind of taken it for granted. And I, there are a lot of politicians who I think maybe will have to rethink that value. This This darkness that periodically sets in and the cynicism and the, the sort of ends justify the means thinking that sets in is in some ways the other side, the flip side of the idealism that permeates American society, right? That only a society that proclaims itself to have a dream can 
can be disappointed in that way. Um, there is a, mm. I, I think what you're talking about is, is a, a level of uh, dis- feeling of disillusionment that gets converted into grievance politically. Whereas in some other democracies I'm familiar with, particularly in continental Europe, there's just sort of an ambient worldliness about human behavior generally and politics in particular that maybe protects them a little bit against that level of, uh, uh, of feeling of feeling so terribly aggrieved and deceived and having their dream disappointed. Yeah, there's a real brittleness in American political culture in that way that people people who are raised with exceptionalism when that bubble bursts can go really uh, unusually dark. Um, but one thing I will say though, kind of returning a little bit to this theme of generations, is that I did a, an earlier book on young people in politics in the 19th century, and and one thing I, I found was that. Even back then, rising generations are often awfully contrarian to older generations and try to kind of correct their behavior. So people who grew up with a really sunny vision of American exceptionalism in the early 19th century, when, when they ran into the Civil War, they got awfully dark. But but the generation that grew up after, that grew up in the Gilded Age with these assumptions that everything was rigged and everything was corrupt, well, well, they kind of fueled the progressive era, kind of pushing back against the attitudes of their elders and of the previous generation. So we might see in Gen Z or some rising future generation a sense that whining about the system being rigged is, is kind of cliche and old hat and establishment and, and a kind of renewed earnestness or, or democratic optimism or something from a rising generation because it will just look like what the old fogies were doing. One of the most I, almost profound things I ever learned about American resilience is the following. As you probably remember back when the government shut down and I think it was 2011 or 2013 and the S&P uh, uh, marked down or one of the ratings agencies marked down our bonds from AAA to AA plus and everybody feared a, a global crash. What actually happened was that investors became worried and bought more of those very same bonds because uh, they considered them, you know, that in troubled times, you go into U.S. <laughs> securities. And, uh, you know, in the same way, I have been struck by how so many of the young people and people of all ages, really, who are denouncing the system and saying we have to save the country from imminent disaster, do it by going into elections, by voting, by running for office. And by uh, participating more in this very same system that they say is so hopelessly corrupt. So maybe that's just another way, John, of saying that I'm glad Americans have a, a great capacity to contradict themselves. Sometimes sometimes it's the best possible scenario, right? And it's what has made American history and politics so mobile and fungible over the years. So, yeah, I, I do have hope in, in rising generations, if nothing else, just getting getting tired of people arguing over the same issues at uh, forever. Well, uh, speaking of forever, unfortunately, you and I cannot continue talking forever because we only have a certain amount of time for this podcast. But I really wish we could go on much longer because it's fascinating to discuss these things with you. I, I really believe you're one of the more innovative and original people writing history today. And uh, it's been a real, uh, been a real eye opener and a real privilege to get to know you a little bit and to have you on the podcast. And uh, let's keep in touch, and we'll do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a pleasure to get to talk with you about this. Thank you, John. <laughs>